Episode 8, Backstreets. Don't talk, just listen. in St. Matthew's Church. Their youngest member was a girl of seven they called Tilda. The eldest was Jonathan. Jonathan was 14. Of them all, only Jonathan remembered the days of the yellow sun. For the other dozen or so members of the little clan, the idea of a yellow sun and a world beyond and besides the midnight desert was as wild as any fairy tale and if they maintained any recollection of this other world, it may as well have been a memory of a dream that someone else had told you about. If they had had families before, they were long vanished. The Wilding tribe was their family, and Jonathan was their father. They ran feral through the corridors of endless night. They stole and broke and burned they bade blood cries to the gray slate sky, savage as any beast. They hunted, with punji spears sharpened to lethality from hockey sticks, with knives and pruning shears lifted from kitchen drawers and closets, and with wicked curves of sharpened can edges, which the girl Tilda wore between her fingers. They brought down small game, like squirrels and birds, and strange crab creatures that clung to the sides of buildings like barnacles to boat hulls. These could be a delta crack, but the right rock used with the right force most usually got the job done. If a concrete crab proved to be too difficult to crack, Jonathan had a solution. What he would do is he would strike a fire and get the water all a-bubbling and a-boiling, and then he would drop the crab into the water. They screamed when they died. They screamed every time. And the wilding children of St. Matthew's would laugh, and Mike would laugh along. But all the while, Mike knew that the screams would echo inside him for long, long after the laughter had stopped. Of late, it seemed to Mike that Jonathan was expending less and less time trying to crack the crabs, and instead jumped quickly eagerly even, to boiling them. Lately, when the tribe brought down an especially big and ugly brute, Jonathan would refuse it death. Instead, he would stand over the beast, its hide littered with spear shafts and hockey sticks, the weapons quivering with each shuddering breath the creature took. And he wouldn't kill it. He would watch it die. On those nights, they feasted, 
but there was no celebration. But what really worried Mike was how Jonathan had begun acting around the people. Adults. The Wildlings had a game, their oldest, that constituted entirely of hiding from the adults that wandered into their territory or intruded on a hunt. The braver and sneakier of the tribe would dare each other to get as close as humanly possible. Jonathan was getting very close. Once, Mike and Jonathan had followed an adult pair into a supermarket, stalking the couple from the tops of shelves. At one point, the boys were poised on a shelf directly above the nervous couple as they crammed their mouths full of long, expired crackers. Mike had turned, grinning, to his leader, only to find the older boy's eyes fixed on the couple, his knife in hand. The Rambo knife, he called it. No one else knew who Rambo was. When Jonathan turned, he grinned in response to Mike's own. But nothing human glimmered in the older boy's eyes. Eyes that went from Mike back to the couple, then to his knife, then back to Mike. Eyes beneath eyebrows that lifted, asking a silent question. Mike shook his head. Jonathan gave a commie shrug, like it was all just some joke, and he put the knife away. The boys stayed a few moments longer, but the game was gone. Mike had to content himself with the thought that however wild Jonathan may be, or be becoming, he was not a killer of men. But he was getting very close. Mike had no idea what to do, and it turned out that he didn't need to know, because shortly thereafter, he met Terry. Mike met Terry during the part of summer when the heat drives down with a heavy sledgehammer. The kind of hot where just a moment's contact with the air would set your skin to leaking. The kind of heat that's visible to the naked eye. Mike had spent the day watching an older man mind his bakery. There were no customers, no one to notice or remark upon the man's creations. And yet he kept creating. When the baker was satisfied with his concoction, he drew up a chair and began to eat. The figure moved so quickly, both the baker and Mike almost missed it. It blurred in through a broken window, seized up a piece of bread, and went back out the way it had come. Broken glass was still tinkling at his passage when the baker found his senses, found his feet, and lastly, found his pump shotgun. He fired a burst into the alley mouth where the shape had dropped but all he succeeded in doing was obliterating some brick. The baker seemed content with the theft, or at least wise enough to know that he might as well accept contentment as his only real option, and he returned to the remains of his store, going through the window that just as the creature had done. But Mike, as we have said, was a child, and children are less accepting of things like this. He was fairly certain he knew the direction the shape was heading, and so in that direction, he went. 
Disturbances of birds evidenced the path the shape was taking. Mike followed it as it wove a maze through the outer reach of the city, never truly in sight, but never totally lost. The maze that ended at an anonymous back alley. From his perch on the roof, Mike watched the shrouded figure take massive, gulping bites out of the baker's bread. The hands that held the bread ended in claws. Mike's first instinct was to run back to the church and bring the whole gang running to see the new freak show he had found for them to play with. But then he thought of Jonathan, thought of him running at the head of that pack, thought of him smiling those fires in his eyes light anew with the promise of fresh bloodshed. And the shape seemed so much smaller now that it had stopped moving. Mike came to a decision before he realized he was making one. He climbed down the fire escape. When he was just shy of halfway down, the shape noticed him. It did not move, but remained in a startled, tense pose, primed to flee at any moment. Mike began to climb down even slower. When he finally reached the bottom, he halted and he waited. The shrouded thing waited too. Mike said, My name is Mike. Who are you? The shrouded thing removed its shroud. The boy looked back at Mike, seemed to be only a year older, if that, though it was somewhat hard to tell. The boy said, My name is Terry, and ran a nervous tongue across teeth tipped in fangs. Mike asked, Are you a monster? Terry said no, at least. He asked her out that way. He wasn't entirely sure what he was now. His ears twitched. His tail twisted. His bat wings fluttered as if prepared at any moment to launch him into the atmosphere. Terry said he wasn't done changing yet, and he wouldn't know what he was until he was finished, and he didn't know when that would be. I know what you are. Mike said. You do? Terry replied. What? Mike's grin spread from ear to ear. You're badass. That's what you are. And just like that, they were friends. It really was that simple. That's how the summer was spent with the two boys tearing down the city streets, chasing one another to greater speeds and higher heights. The way Terry told it, his change happened like this. He had been on his own for a while, longer than he could remember, and without even a group to go wild with. He made his bed in old construction sites, sleeping in concrete tubes suspended above the ground. Every night, he'd had to contend with the lullaby of screams and yowls and the sounds of inhuman feasting. He had prayed for safety. He had prayed for protection. But mostly, Terry had prayed to not be afraid anymore. Then one night, he'd had a dream. In the dream, he awoke in his concrete tube, but when he poked his head out, the sky was not the familiar gray, 
but a throbbing surface the deep red of blood. Buildings look like fire-blackened bones. Following the flow of dreams, Terry climbed down from his perch and made for a location he knew without knowing. Shadows moved around him, whispering warnings he could not begin to understand. His feet brought him to the fountain at Hawk Setter Park. Terry knew from his many visits to the park with his parents that the statue at the heart of the fountain was a granite angel posed above a sneering serpent, the angel's spear poised for the killing blow, but not in dream. In dream, the serpent coiled around the angel, the heavenly figure's head reared back in an expression the boy could only assume was agony. Sitting on the fountain was a man who would not let Terry see his eyes. You don't want to be afraid anymore, the man said. I can help with that. He extended his hand. Shake it and accept my help. Terry hadn't wanted to. He was sure he hadn't wanted to. But he was just so tired of being afraid. And so he shook. But the man had squeezed his hand and pulled him close, and Terry had screamed in fear and with pain, for it felt like his very bones were afire. And the man had then at last let Terry see his eyes, and Terry had screamed again, screamed his way back to the waking world. He had been more than happy to write the red world off as a particularly vivid dream until he went to put his socks on and his new claws tore holes through the fabric. It had gone like that ever since, a piece of him changing at a time. It was a process still ongoing. On one particularly hot day, Terry showed up with a head that had fully transformed all humanity lost from the bat-like maw he now possessed. He tried to play it off with their usual games and banter, but Mike could see the sorrow just beneath. Cracking lightning ended their play, and the boys took shelter in a long-ago raided McDonald's. None of the lights worked, and with the storm overhead, it was midnight dark at midday. With nothing to do, they talked. And as they talked, the terror began to pour out. It was supposed to keep me from being afraid, Terry sobbed. But I'm afraid every moment. Every breath feels like I'm breathing fire. Mike hadn't known what to say, so he said nothing. He took the other boy in his arms and held him. Terry crumpled, weeping, like an angel on his chest. Together they watched until the storm blew itself out. After, they walked around but they needed none of their usual pretenses this time. It was enough to just be, to be alive and out and about and to be together. When Terry took to the sky, he carried Mike with him and the two rode summer thermals over the city. On a rooftop overlooking where they had taken off, Jonathan stood and watched the pair, his eyes never leaving them not even when they climbed so high and went so far the two boys became a single black dot. Jonathan kept 
staring. In telling you these stories, we've touched on people who made bad choices and met bad ends. People of varying moral character who found themselves in impossible positions and chose perhaps poorly. But none of them, not so far, have been calculating or intentionally malicious. None until Jonathan. So take a bow, young man. You're a monster unlike any other we've discussed so far. Jonathan followed the budding serial killer's playbook to a T. Anti-social behavior from a young age, broken family, fascination with death and dead animals, all the classics. Who's to say where his life might have gone had the city not been lost to the Black Sun? Maybe he would have grown out of it. Maybe he would have ended up with a secret room full of whips, manacles, and instruments ending in sharp tips. But none of that matters, because the city was lost, and the boy was awoken. Here, in this feral land, he could lose himself to the hunts, to the primal drives instilled in humanity's collective minds, the days we spent huddled in the back of caves while the jungle screamed its hunger. Here, at last, Jonathan felt right at home. Of late, that clarity of purpose had begun to fade. The old boredom, the one that had sent him sifting for roadkill that he might dissect and leave in his sister's bed, had begun again to rear its ugly head. He assumed this all meant that soon he would kill someone. He thought of it often, most usually at night, his pants uncomfortably tight as he envisioned staring into eyes as the light within went out. The only real question was who? An invisible barrier that Jonathan could not define surrounded the other children in the wildling gang. Though Jonathan felt no true emotion for them, he was used to their presence and did not desire for any major changes to his living circumstances. One of the adults then? Or a lonesome child, lost in the dark world? These appealed as well, yes, but for all his anticipation, Jonathan did not want to rush this process. He wanted to ease into it, to build up to the biggest possible release. So far as step ones go, the Bat Boy seemed perfect. Later, Terry would remark the strangest thing was that he had been a vegetarian before the change. Couldn't even stand the aroma of meat or the sight of blood. But after the changes finished and left him physically altered but mentally intact, he felt the most peculiar and specific pangs of hunger. He kept it to himself and only mentioned to Mike that he was feeling peckish for, for new meat. Mike had an idea. My mom and dad would kill me if they saw me eating this stuff, Terry said as he watched Mike roast some wall crabs over an open flame. The two boys were perched in a pharmacy roof. Mike tanked to the fire, and Terry tanked to edge away from whichever direction the wind stirred the flames. He didn't like the images conjured by the wafting smoke and flame and meat. Your parents 
Mike said. We're pussies. He smiled as he said it, liking the sound of the word on his lips. It was how grown-ups talked, after all. The crab finished cooking, and the boys set to eating. Terry cried out in surprise when a bite caused a spurt of meat to eject directly down his throat, burning as it went. Mike, who knew to be on guard for such surprises, laughed with a mouthful of his meal. Neither heard Jonathan or the other children. Not first. They stepped into place as pure as if they'd stepped out of the smoke itself. The faces of the children were grim. Set. Only Jonathan was smiling. He wore his empty smile. Hi, boys, he said, cheerful. The cheer stung Mike's heart like a frost-tipped blade. You look like you're having a fine meal on this fine night. But, Mikey, you haven't introduced us to your new friend. The spear tips were blackened with fire, with blood. They ate the light from Mike's fire. This is Terry, Mike said. Terry, the older boy balked. What kind of name is Terry for a killer? Terry's not a killer, Mike objected. Oh no? Look at this thing, and you tell me he's not any kind of killer? Mikey, I thought I taught you more brains than that. Can't you see that this thing, it's just trying to get on your good side, so you'll lower your guard, so it can rip you limb from limb? God, kid. Why do I have to do everything for you? To the others, he said. Hold the freak down. No, Mike cried, and relieved at the older boy. Jonathan caught him, dropped him, and beat him until Mike stopped making gurgling noises. All the while, Terry had kept his seat, not moving. Not even when the pungy sticks neared his throat. This is it, he thought. This is how it ends. This is it, Jonathan thought. Jesus Christ, this is it. He was so excited it was a wonder his bones did not jump clear of his body. He felt the whistle on his lips, but wrestled it down. It would not be a fitting moment if he started whistling. Jonathan swiped the spear from little Tilda, pale beneath her war paint. Something was happening here, she knew. They all knew. A line was being crossed the kind that doesn't ever get taken back. She edged away, hoping to float off like the cracking embers drifting from the still glowing fire. Jonathan aimed his spear tip directly at Terry's eye, his right eye. The night was cool, but sweat poured off the older boy. I'm going to put this through your right eye, Jonathan said. I'm going to watch the life fade out of your left. And if you do anything, I'm going to split your little boyfriend in half from his cock to his throat. Got it? And Terry said, thank you. The spear wavered. Thank you for what? Terry, looking only at the flames, said, there's something I've been needing to do, but I didn't know how I could ever do it without feeling bad about it for the rest of my life. So, 
thank you because I'm not going to feel bad about this. And then a blur. When I told the story to the other wildlings, Tilda and the others could only give impressions. It had been all shadows and orange glow and sudden spurts of red. But some details they were quite sure about. The monster had seized Jonathan's head and begun to twist. When the neck could turn no further, he kept twisting until the snap, the crack, and yes, a final pop. Jonathan's head was tossed aside like a sprung cap from a beer bottle. Blood had flowed a torrent of it, and the monster had lapped it up without exhaustion. They had faced many a beast in their time in the city beneath the black sun, but never this. Never anything at all like this. So they fled. And what, the others asked, had become of Mike? Tilda admitted to having looked back in time to see the creature pick up the prone body and launch into the sky. What happened then? She didn't know, and she couldn't say. We know. We could say. But that's another story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. My name is Brandon Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Network. Uh, if you like this one, uh, please check out Cinepunks, Loud Fast Philly, Horror Business. Uh, we have lots and lots of great shows on here, so there's bound to be something that you like, uh, even if this one wasn't to your fancy. Uh, Cinepunks is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can hit them up at xlvacx.com. Again, it's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, xlvacx.com. You can be a Cinepunk sponsor yourself by supporting our Patreon, which you can find on our website. Uh, wouldn't that be nice of you? Huh, give that a shot. Uh, if you like this show, please uh, rate and review us and spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Signal Fires, uh, the Torches of Gondor, uh, whatever. Just uh, help spread the word and help people find out about this show. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the true F, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Uh, there will be updates and maybe hints about future episodes. Uh, so, like I said, if you like the show and want to stay in touch, uh, that's where you can go. Black Sun Dispatch's logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. Uh, the show is produced using Meat Reaper, and music for this week's episode is Winter by E. L. Heath. Uh, so, tune in. We will be back. Uh, well, geez, when will we be back? Let's see. It would be a good time to do the next episode. I probably shouldn't do this live on microphone, but that's how it's going to go. Uh, we'll be back on August 6th. Uh, actually, August 7th. That's the first Monday in August. Uh, so, yeah, so look for us then. Uh, should be a really good episode uh, once we figure out what it's going to be. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, hopefully, like I said, if you like this episode, uh, listen to some of the other ones, spread the word, and we'll see you on August 7th for the next one. Uh, thanks, guys. Bye.